anybody sinners. While we were still enemies with God, he died. And so he made sure that he loved us not after we cleaned up our act. He, he loved us while we were still sinners. And then anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. He called them believers. But the Bible also talks about disciples. A disciple is a person who decides that they are so in love with Jesus now that they have decided now that it is worth following Jesus, that they are going to make sure that Jesus is not just Savior, but he is Lord. And what that means is that he, he or she is going to decide to give the lordship over their life to Jesus. We're going to watch a video in a moment, and uh, it's one of the TED Talks. You know what I'm talking about, a TED Talk? Uh, if you don't know, you'll find out what a TED Talk is. This is not a talk in a church. This is not a talk given by a Christian. This is actually a talk given by an atheist, somebody who, um, Johan Harry, uh, who is going to give this TED Talk, has said that he's an atheist. He does not believe in God, and he is convinced he does not believe in God. So this is not a church service that we're going to watch in a moment. This is not a sermon from the Bible we're going to watch in a moment. This is somebody who is an atheist, who's done some research, and he's done some research into the topic of addiction. He's researched um, with doctors, he's researched with uh, psychiatrists, he's researched with psychologists, he's researched at, at drug rehabilitation centers. I'm going to watch this video, and then I'm going to come back and talk on the back of that. And the reason I'm qualifying what we're about to watch is I just want you to know I'm not endorsing anything that's being said there. I'm not denying what's anything being said there. I don't work in the field of addiction recovery or science. I just want us to watch this video and just be aware of some of the conclusions these, re these researchers have come up with. Um, and I'm also aware that in scientific research, we are also open to the possibility that one person's research might contradict another person's research. So for the sake of argument, we're just going to look at the research that's been presented today. And I want us to pay attention to that, so be, have an open mind and grab the information that has been presented through this research paper. So this is not a spiritual Bible study. This is just a video for us to watch that I want to use as an introduction to teaching from the Bible. So this is Johan Harry. He's an atheist. He's doing a TED Talk on addiction. Let's see if we can roll this video. If we watch this, I'll come back and read the Bible and talk on the back of that. Is a trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I was just a little kid, so I didn't really understand why. But as I got older, I realized we had drug addiction in my family, including later cocaine addiction. I've been thinking about it a lot lately, partly because it's now exactly 100 years since drugs were first banned in the United States and Britain, and we then imposed that on the rest of the world. It's a century since we made this really fateful decision to take addicts and punish them and make them suffer because we believed that would deter them, it would give them an incentive to stop. And a few years ago, I was looking at some of the addicts in my life who I love and trying to figure out if there was some way to help them. And I realized there were loads of incredibly basic questions I just didn't know the answer to. Like, what really causes addiction? Uh, why do we carry on with this approach that doesn't seem to be working? And is there a better way out there that we could try instead? So I read loads of stuff about it, and I couldn't really find the answers I was looking for. So I thought, okay, I'll go and sit with different people around the world who lived this and studied this and talk to them and see if I can learn from them. And I ended up, I didn't realize I would end up going over 30,000 miles at the start, but I ended up going and meeting loads of different people from a transgender crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, to a scientist who spends a lot of time feeding hallucinogens to mongooses to see if they like them. Um, 
It turns out they do, but only in very specific circumstances. To, to the only country that's ever decriminalized all drugs, from cannabis to crack, Portugal. And the thing I realized that really blew my mind is almost everything we think we know about addiction is wrong. And if we start to absorb the new evidence about addiction, I think we're going to have to change a lot more than our drug policies. But let's start with what we think we know, what I thought I know, right? Just think about this middle row here, right? Imagine all of you, for 20 days now, went off and used heroin three times a day. Some of you look a little bit more enthusiastic than others at this prospect. Um, the, don't worry, it's just a thought experiment. Imagine you did that, right? What, do we, what would happen? Now, we have a story about what would happen that we've been told for a century. We think, because there are chemical hooks in heroin, as you took it for a while, your body would become dependent on those hooks, you'd start to physically need them, and at the end of those 20 days, you'd all be heroin addicts, right? That's what I thought. First thing that alerted me to the fact something not right with this story is when it was explained to me, if I step out of this TED Talk today and I get hit by a car and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given loads of diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's actually much better heroin than you're ever going to buy on the streets because the stuff you buy from a drug dealer is contaminated, actually very little of it is heroin, whereas the stuff you get from the doctor is medically pure. And you'll be given it for quite a long period of time. There are loads of people in this room may not realize that you've taken quite a lot of heroin, right? Uh, and, for, and anyone watching this anywhere in the world, this is happening. And if what we believe about addiction is right, those people are exposed to all those chemical hooks. What should happen? They should become addicts. This has been studied really carefully. It doesn't happen. You will have noticed if your grandmother had a hip replacement, she didn't come out as a junkie. <laughs> and when I learned this, it just seemed so weird to me, so contrary to everything I'd been told, everything I thought I knew. I just thought it couldn't be right, until I went and met a man called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology in Vancouver, who carried out an incredible experiment that I think really helps us to understand this issue. Professor Alexander explained to me, the idea of addiction we've all got in our heads, that story, comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. You can do them tonight when you go home if you feel a little bit sadistic. You get a rat and you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's how we think it works. In the 70s, Professor Alexander comes along and he looks at this experiment and he noticed something. He said, ah, we're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use these drugs. Let's try something a bit different. So Professor Alexander built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of colored balls, they've got loads of tunnels. Crucially, they've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, and they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. You go from almost 100% overdose when they're isolated is 0% overdose when they have happy and connected lives. Now, when he first saw this, Professor Alexander thought, you know, maybe this is just a thing about rats, they're quite different to us, you know, not, maybe not as different as we'd like, but, you know. Um, but fortunately, there was a human experiment into the exact same principle happening at the exact same time. It was called the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, 20% of all American troops were using loads of heroin. And uh, if you look at the news reports from the time, they were really worried because they thought, my God, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war ends. It made total sense. 
Now, those soldiers who were using loads of heroin were followed home. The archives of general psychiatry did a really detailed study. And what happened to them? It turns out they didn't go to rehab. They didn't go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped. Now, if you believe the story about chemical hooks, that makes absolutely no sense. But Professor Alexander began to think there might be a different story about addiction. He said, what if addiction isn't about your chemical hooks? What if addiction is about your cage? What if addiction is an adaptation to your environment? Looking at this, there was another professor called Peter Cohen in the Netherlands who said, maybe we shouldn't even call it addiction. Maybe we should call it bonding. Human beings have a natural and innate need to bond. And when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're traumatized or isolated or beaten down by life, you will bond with something that will give you some sense of relief. Now, that might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be cocaine, that might be cannabis, but you will bond and connect with something because that's our nature. That's what we want as human beings. And I think, you know, at first I found this quite a difficult thing to get my head around, but one way that helped me to think about it is, and I can see, you know, I've got over by my seat there a bottle of water, right? I'm looking at lots of you, and lots of you have bottles of water with you, right? Forget drugs, forget the drug war. Totally legally, all of those bottles of water could be bottles of vodka, right? We could all be getting drunk, I might, after this. Um, and, but we're not, right? Now, because you've been able to afford the approximately a gazillion pounds that it costs to get into a TED Talk, I'm guessing you guys could afford to be drinking vodka for the next six months. You wouldn't end up homeless. You're not going to do that. And the reason you're not going to do that is not because anyone's stopping you. It's because you've got bonds and connections that you want to be present for. You've got work you love. You've got people you love. You've got healthy relationships. And a core part of addiction, I came to think, and I believe the evidence suggests, is about not being able to bear to be present in your life. Now, this has really significant implications. The most obvious implications are for the war on drugs, right? In Arizona, I went out with a group of women who were made to wear t-shirts saying I was a drug addict and go out on chain gangs and dig graves while members of the public could jeer at them. And when those women get out of prison, they're going to have criminal records that mean they'll never work in the legal economy again. Now, that's a very extreme example, obviously, in the case of the chain gang. But actually, almost everywhere in the world, we treat addicts to some degree like that. We punish them, we shame them, we give them criminal records, we put barriers between them reconnecting. There was a doctor in Canada, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, an amazing man, who said to me, if you wanted to design a system that would make addiction worse, you would design that system. Now, there's a place that decided to do the exact opposite, and I went there to see how it worked. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of mind-blowing. And every year, they tried the American way more and more. They punished people and stigmatized them and shamed them more. And every year, the problem got worse. And one day, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and basically said, look, we can't go on with a country where we're having ever more people becoming heroin addicts. Let's set up a panel of scientists and doctors to figure out what would genuinely solve the problem. And they set up a panel led by an amazing man called Dr. Huao Gulao to look at all this new evidence. And they came back and they said, decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to crack. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we used to spend on cutting addicts off, on disconnecting them, and spend it instead on reconnecting them with the society. And that's not 
it's interesting, that's not really what we think of. What they did wasn't really what we think of as drug treatment in the United States and Britain. So they do do residential rehab, they do do psychological therapy that does have some value. But the biggest thing they did was the complete opposite of what we do. A massive program of job creation for addicts and micro-loans for addicts to set up small businesses. So say you used to be a mechanic. When you're ready, they go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. The goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning. And when I went and met the addicts in Portugal, it's fascinating, what they said is, as they rediscovered purpose, they rediscovered bonds and relationships with the wider society. It'll be uh, 15 years this year since that experiment began, and the results are in. Injecting drug users down in Portugal, according to the British Journal of Criminology, by 50%, 50%. Overdoses massively down, HIV is massively down among addicts. Uh, addiction in every study is significantly down. One of the ways you know it's worked so well is that almost nobody in Portugal wants to go back to the old system. Now, that's the kind of political implications. I actually think there's a layer of implications to all this research below that. You know, we live in a culture where people feel really increasingly vulnerable to all sorts of addictions, whether it's to their smartphones or to shopping or to eating. You know, before these talks began, you guys know this, that uh, we were told we weren't allowed to have our smartphones on. And I have to say, a lot of you looked an awful lot like addicts who were being told their dealer was going to be unavailable for the next couple of hours. And, you know, a lot of us feel like that. And it might sound weird to say, oh, you know, I've been talking about how disconnection is a major driver of addiction. But weird to say it's growing because you think, well, we're the most connected society there's ever been, surely. But I increasingly began to think that the connection we have, the connections we have, we think we have, are like a kind of parody of human connection. If you have a crisis in your life, you'll notice something. It won't be your Twitter followers who come to sit with you. It won't be your Facebook friends who help you turn it around. It'll be your flesh and blood friends who you have deep and nuanced and textured face-to-face -face relationships with. And I think there's a, there's a study I learned about from Bill McKibben, the environmental writer, I think tells us a lot about this. There's a, it looked at the number of close friends the average American believes they can call on in a crisis. That number has been declining steadily since the 1950s. The amount of floor space an individual has in their home has been steadily increasing. And I think that's like a metaphor for the choice we've made as a culture, right? We've traded floor space for friends. We've traded stuff for connections. And the result is that we are one of the loneliest societies there has ever been. And yet Bruce Alexander, the guy who did the Rat Park experiment, says, we talk all the time in addiction about individual recovery. And it's right to talk about that. But we need to talk much more about social recovery. Something's gone wrong with us, not just as individuals, but as a group. And we created a society where, for a lot of us, life looks a whole lot more like that isolated cage and a whole lot less like Rat Park. But if I'm honest, this isn't why I went into it, right? I didn't go in to discover the political stuff, the social stuff. I wanted to know how to help the people I love. And when I came back from this long journey and I'd learned all this, I looked at the addicts in my life, and if, you know, if you're really candid, it's, it's hard loving an addict, and there's going to be lots of people who know in this room you're angry a lot of the time. And um, I think one of the reasons why this debate is so charged is because it runs through the heart of each of us, right? Everyone has a bit of them that looks at an addict and thinks, I wish someone would just stop you. And the kind of script we're told for how to deal with the addicts in our lives is typified by, I think, by the reality show Intervention. If you guys haven't seen it, I think everything in our lives is typified by reality TV, but that's another, that's another TED talk. Um, uh, if you've never seen the show Intervention, it's a pretty simple premise. You get an addict, all the people in their life, gather them together, and say, if you don't shape up, they confront them with what they're doing, and they say, if you don't shape up, we're going to cut you off, right? So what they do is they take the connection to the addict, 
and they threaten it. They make it contingent on the addict behaving the way they want. Um, and I began to think, I began to see why that approach doesn't work. And I began to think that almost that's like the importing of the logic of the drug war into our private lives. So I was thinking, well, how can I be Portuguese, right? And what I try to do now, and I can't tell you I do it consistently, and I can't tell you it's easy, is to say to the addicts in my life that I want to deepen the connection with them, to say to them, I love you whether you're using or you're not. I love you whatever state you're in. And if you need me, I'll come and sit with you because I love you and I don't want you to be alone or to feel alone. And I think the core of that message, you're not alone, we love you, has to be at every level of how we respond to addicts, socially, politically, and individually. For a hundred years now, we've been singing war songs about addicts. I think all along we should have been singing love songs to them because the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Thank you. So, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a researcher, I'm not an expert in the field of addiction. That was not a church talk. I'm neither endorsing nor denying anything that's been said there. But I was interested to look at the 10 conclusions that they came up with, doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, research. Do you want to hear it? One, unconditional love works. I wonder who could give that. Number two, Somebody who can say to an addict, I will never leave you or forsake you. It works. I wonder who can give that. Number three, they came to the conclusion that legalism doesn't work. I wonder where I've heard that before. Number four, they came to the conclusion that shame is not going to fix the problem. If you tell people, shame on you, that somehow they're going to fix themselves. I wonder who came to the world and said there's no condemnation. For those who believe said addiction is a connection problem addiction is a problem where they cannot reconcile the pain within themselves addiction is a problem that comes where there is no clarity of purpose unconditional love works and the opposite of addiction is connection we shouldn't be singing war songs we should be singing love songs I remember hearing that and going I don't know I'm not in science I don't know whether this research is true or not. But many, many, many doctors have concluded that this research is true. I'm sure there are other doctors that say that's not true. But I remember listening there and going, well, your solution is the gospel, surely. Your solution is the gospel because everything that you're describing, Jesus provides. Somebody who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Somebody who says, you don't have to come to my level. I will come down to your level and help you where you're at. Somebody who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Somebody who says, I'll give you purpose. I will give you something to get out of bed for. Addiction is a connection issue, this research shows. And this sermon series, we've been looking at how various heroes have shaped our society. And today I want to talk about the hero of all heroes. It's Jesus Christ himself. Because the power of the gospel is this. You didn't have to go to a TED talk, sit through 15 years of medical research. You just have to read the Bible and in the pages of the Bible, you will find a man who says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Who says, you don't have to come to where I'm at, I will come down to where you're at. God so loved the world 
Jesus, even though he was equal with God, did not regard equality as something to be grasped, but humbled himself, took the point of a slave, and he died for us. You don't have to go anywhere to, but to the pages of the Bible to say that God has a plan and a purpose for your life, that he has predestined us for good works. You don't need to go far to know that there is God who is sitting there and offering you unconditional love. The opposite of addiction is connection. Now, you may listen to that and think, man, I'm not addicted to cocaine. I'm not addicted to drugs, or maybe you are. But I want to tell you, we can be addicted to many other things. Addicted to people liking us. Addicted to having the approval of people. Addicted in such a way that we think that we are so uh, controlling our systems and our environment so you will never get rejected again. Addicted to religion. Addicted to endorsement from people. Addicted to think, oh gosh, will people like me or will people reject me? Addicted to social media. Addicted to food. Addicted to drink. Uh, something is profoundly wrong when we cannot process the pain on the inside of us. I've said this before and, and publicly and, and people know this. Now, once a year, I, I go through therapy myself. Once a year, I go through therapy. I remember every time I do that, I call the trustees, the board of directors in the church and say, hey, it's that time of the year where I'm going for inner healing therapy. I want you to pray for me. The reason for that is because if you do not process pain well, it'll end up, in, you'll end up in a place where you are connecting with something else you are bonding with something else and that might be a love for people that uh, they should never reject you it might be uh, an intrinsic desire never to be never to be pushed aside and so we we come up with all sorts of coping mechanisms and if you're not careful you might not get addicted to heroin or cocaine but there'll be other things that you'll be addicted to that'll replace the fact that your only addiction is the fact that you are a child of God and you are meant to, deserve, to, 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 to get your worth, your significance, your value, everything from Jesus Christ himself. And so I want to say to you today that the hero of all heroes stands. You don't have to study medicine. You don't have to do research. If you do that, we honor you and we love you and we applaud you. And that is a phenomenal contribution you are making to our society. But I remember seeing that talk and going, wow, unconditional love, somebody who will come down to you where you're at, somebody who will never leave you or forsake you, somebody who can give you a plan and a purpose, somebody who can help you process your pain, somebody who can give you a connection with something that is a higher power, but also with other people here in community. I wonder who could provide that. That's the gospel, isn't it? In a nutshell, that's the gospel. What would happen if we became addicted to the gospel, addicted to the message of Jesus Christ? I wonder what things we would be free from if we truly understood the gospel, that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you not as you ought to be. Jesus loves you as you are today. I wonder what would happen if you would allow the love of Jesus to heal the pain on the inside. 
I wonder what would really happen if you take time for therapy and you said, Jesus, I want to process this with you where I really want to talk through some of my disappointments, some of my discouragements, some of my unanswered prayers, some of the things that were done to me that was not fair. I wonder what would look like if we truly healed from pain. I want to encourage you, listen, we are a Pentecostal church. We are a church that truly believes that God moves in power and the power of God can do anything. But I must encourage you that with that power, you have to work with it so that it is applied into your own life. The existence of water doesn't quench your thirst. It's drinking that water that actually quenches your thirst. And we can come to a church like this where the power exists, the glory exists, the promises of God exist. But I want to encourage you today to apply that to your own life. I want to finish by reading some things from the Bible. And uh, it goes to show this incredible, incredible life that we've been given. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now the ministry of death, if you're able to repeat after me, say the ministry of death. Come on, say that again. Say the ministry of death. The ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Now, in the Bible, you find that there was a plenty of the Bible that was the law, but there was only one small bit of the law that was written on stone. What was that? That was the Ten Commandments. Paul calls the Ten Commandments the ministry of death. The ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory. So the ministry of death had glory. It had the presence of God that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was brought to an end. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, can we go back, verse 6 and 7, and then go to verse 8 if we can? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there. So let's go back, read from the beginning. We skipped that verse. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting from verse 6. We're going to read verse 7. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Can we see verse 5, verse 8 now, the next verse? Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, everybody say the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what came, what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. Even this day, even to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that veil still remains unlifted because only through Christ is that veil taken away. Yes, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is 
freedom. There's freedom. There's freedom. Here's the summary. God came to people and said, I've got some, I've got some help for you. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. If you do this, you will get this blessing. If you don't do this, this is what the curses are going to be. If you do this, this will benefit you. If you don't do this, I'm going to punish you. If you do this, this will go well for you. If you don't do this, shame on you. And he said, it came with such glory. It came with such the presence of God. It came with such, such, such an awareness that God was real. But it didn't work. What did it do? It brought the ministry of death. What's the point of coming to church and leaving like you feel you're dead? And if you've been engaging with Christianity for so long and you're saying, man, the more I engage with Christianity and church and the Bible, the more I feel dead on the inside, I wonder whether you've been engaging with the wrong ministry, the ministry of death. Because the ministry of death, which condemns you, shames you, tells you you are good for nothing, is not repentance. God already knows what you did. But here is what God does in the new covenant. He said, I'm not going to give you some shame and condemnation to fix your life. I'm going to send my son and he will die in your place. Take your sin, take your guilt, take your shame, take your curse. And if you will believe in the moving of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of righteousness will not lead you to death death, the ministry of righteousness will lead you to life. That's the gospel. Where the spirit is, there is freedom. But the veil is always on your head if you read it through the lens of Moses. And that's why a lot of people know the word of God, but they don't know the God of the word. How do you know? You can find out through their words. They won't be talking words of joy. All their words will be everything that's wrong with the church, everything that's wrong with the world, everything that's wrong with the government. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if whatever your heart is full of, it will speak. And you'll find other people, you'll think, man, they don't have a care in the world because they're full of joy, they're full of righteousness, they're full of peace. When you around them you feel like you've stood up uh, you can stand up tall you've grown two inches it's not because they don't have problems in their life but they're being led by the spirit where they are receiving the ministry of righteousness and life and life is coming through the work of the holy spirit that's helping them to break addiction and break sin and live a holy life and live for jesus not because they're being shamed when they read the bible and condemned when they go through the word of god but they're receiving the empowerment of the holy spirit that changes Changes them from the inside out rather than changing you from the outside in. And many of you who have been to church before, you have learned how to act, talk, react, communicate as a Christian because you've been told you don't do this, you do this, you don't do this, you do this, you don't do this, you do this. And then you conform your ways to how a Christian should act and behave. But all along on the inside, you were dying, you were dealing with pain, and you've been addicted to people's approval, desperately sad and lonely on the inside and turning to drink and drugs to somehow bring peace. But Jesus stands there and says, that's the ministry of death. But there is a better ministry. It's called the ministry of righteousness. That ministry has glory. It will feel like you have the presence of God. Religion is a lousy teacher. Religion will teach you that on your best day, you can do it. And you know those days where you've read the Bible five hours, you've prayed for 10 hours, and you're on top of the world, and you think, man, I'll never fall again. This is going to be me. I will 
will never. Watch me, watch me. Nobody can touch me. But next week, somebody touched you. Next week, somebody didn't smile at you. Next week, something happened. Your football team didn't win. Or you looked at your bank balance and you went into depression. And then all of a sudden, the joy is gone. The peace is gone. The righteousness is gone. But that is not the life you are meant to live where you are on top of the mountain one day. You're in the valley the next day. So the people around you are actually looking at you and going, I wonder what season of life they're in. Are they on the mountaintop? Are they in a valley? Are they in a good place? Are they in a bad place? All of those are symptoms that you got introduced to the wrong ministry, the ministry of death that shows you that if you try hard and be good and don't sin and read your Bible and pray and bring your tithes and honor the church and honor the pastor, Jesus will be happy with you. And if not, you're going to hell. Jesus comes and abolishes the entire thing and says, what I want is not a contract. What I want is a covenant, a relationship. Sheds his blood on the cross of Calvary and says, the glory of righteousness is what I bring. Paul calls the Ten Commandments the ministry of death. He says, and he calls Jesus' ministry the ministry of righteousness that brings glory. He calls the ministry of death the ministry that has come to fade. And he calls the ministry of righteousness the ministry that has come to stay. The gospel works, my friend. And today, if you are in a place where you have not reconciled with your pain, you have not reconciled with your addiction, you have not reconciled with what has happened to you, your, dis your disappointments, the unanswered prayers, I want to give you an opportunity to heal today. I want to give you an opportunity to look at the face of Jesus. It is only in the face of Jesus that the veil is lifted. Even today, you can read the Bible through the lens of Moses. And you're reading the Bible and you're feeling worse than you did when you first started. And because you're feeling worse than you did when you first started, you've got somebody to blame. You've got to blame somebody because you can't blame yourself. So you then use the Bible to bash it on other people's heads, other churches' heads, and you go on social media posting how other people are all got it wrong and you're the one that's got it right. I want to say to you, you can heal from that pain. That's a symptom of a deep rooted pain and you don't need to carry that pain with you another day of your life you can be introduced to the ministry of righteousness it came with permanent glory and if the veil of Moses is lifted off your eyes where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom are we saying that obedience does not matter no obedience absolutely matters but it's an obedience that comes through the love that comes through the transformation work of the Holy Spirit not an obedience that comes through shame that is the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to every person who has faith. Today, I want to give you an opportunity to heal from the inside. I want to give you an opportunity to truly say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to receive that connection. I want to receive that love. I want to receive that healing. I want to receive that embrace. Today, the ministry of righteousness is available. I want to finish by reading these words from Kent Keith. These words were were hung on uh, Mother Teresa's um, the, uh, the the leprosy home in Calcutta for 20 years, and she hung these words there. And uh, I think they're beautiful. Let me read this to you, and I think with that we will pray. It says this: People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. 
be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It is never between you and them anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Can I ask you a question? How are you living? Have you processed pain on the inside? Are you addicted to something? Approval, insecurity, social media, drink, drugs maybe. We can come to a place like this, sing our songs, and it's good. There's no condemnation or judgment here. But Jesus says, come on, you can do better than that. I stand here to give you life. It's the ministry of righteousness, the ministry that tells you, you stand right with God, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. And if you will find it in your heart to be honest, Pastor Greg Rochelle said these words. He said, you can only be as strong as you are honest. You can only be as strong as you are honest. If you can be honest and say, you know what? It's true. There is a bit of loneliness in me. You know, it's true. There is a bit of, yeah, I'm always hoping people like me. There's, there's this tendency of, oh, I, I have, I'm addicted to human approval. I want people to know me, to like me. I don't want people to reject me. It's true. I've got a drink problem. I've got a drug problem. Hey, at Beacon Church, we belong. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. But there is help available if you want to be honest. If you want to be willing to say, yeah, I could use some help. Where is the help coming from? Well, the help is not coming from shame. The help is com not coming from more rules. The help is not coming from us rejecting you. The help is not coming from telling you that you've got a problem and you are a bad person. The help is not coming from any of that because none of that works. But the gospel works. It is the power of God to salvation to every person who has faith. For a moment of concentration and privacy, will you close your eyes? Because in the final analysis, it is not between you and them. It is between you and God. And today, I want to encourage you to be aware of the glory of the new covenant. Not the ministry of death, not the ministry of condemnation, but the ministry that brings life. Father, I pray for every addiction in this room today, that they will be life. I pray, God, for every person who is struggling from the addiction to human approval. There will be life. I pray for every person that's addicted to social media. There will be life. I pray for every person that's addicted to unhealthy eating habits. There will be life. I pray for every person that's addicted to drinks. There will be life. I pray for every person that's addicted to drugs. There will be life. I pray for every person that's addicted to their sense of worthlessness. Every person that is feeling utterly lonely and despair. Every person that is feeling, Lord, that they're struggling with mental illnesses that are connected to a lack of approval. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name today, the ministry of righteousness, not the ministry of condemnation, will bring glory. Let that glory manifest in people's lives right now. Let that glory come and bring freedom right now. 
Let that glory cause people's lives to be changed and transformed. Let that glory cause such power to manifest in our lives, Lord, because this glory has been brought by Jesus himself. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we are not here because we are following letters carved on a stone. We are following Jesus, who by the power of the Holy Spirit will give us power over sin, will give us power over addiction, will help us to live lives that are worthy of the calling of the gospel. Thank you that Jesus Christ is our ultimate hero. He put himself second, gave himself up so that we might be saved, healed, and delivered. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for your power today. I don't want to shame anybody, but you know if this message applies to you and you're thinking, man, there is an emptiness I feel on the inside sometimes. There is a hollow that I feel on the inside sometimes. I know I haven't processed grief. I know I haven't processed pain. <laughs> One of my mentors once said to me, and it shocked me, he said to me, time doesn't heal anything. Time just makes you forget how bad it used to hurt. Time gives you time to process it. Can I encourage you to not just bury your head in the sand and hope that it all goes away. And you know, here at Beacon Church, we have a ministry team that's available to help you process that. So if you think, man, I'd like to start a healing journey, will you connect? Will you reach out to us via social media platforms or our website and say, that was a message for me. I could do with a few sessions where I'm just connecting with somebody, healing through this, talking it aloud, asking God to come and heal my pain and take me to a place of permanent glory, the glory of righteousness. Father, today I pray that every person who is inside saying, oh, I wish somebody would help me, I pray, God, that they will realize that help is available, that help is available. Today I pray, God, bring healing, bring hope, bring deliverance. If you've never made a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ, today will be a great day to make that decision. If you say, I don't know who Jesus is, but I would like to follow him. I have felt condemned most of my life because I could never live up to the expectations of what it means to be a Christian. But today I give my life to Jesus knowing that he gave his life for me. If you want to make that decision, today would be a great day to do that. I'd like to lead you in a very simple prayer. Many people here who are followers of Jesus Christ will also pray that prayer so that you don't feel you're on your own. If you want to make a decision to become a follower of Jesus, simply repeat these words. Say, Jesus, I give you my life and I receive yours. I receive righteousness, which is right standing with God. I receive peace receive joy. Thank you that my sins are forgiven. And thank you that I am now connected to you. Amen. I believe if you've made that prayer, you've made a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Whether you've made that decision today, or if you're one of those people that say, gosh, the opposite to my addiction is connection. I really would like to heal deeply. Can I really encourage you to make the most of August?
Make sure that you don't do life on your own. Make sure you process pain well. Make sure you're reaching out for help. If you don't have anyone to help you, there are people here that can stand with you, pray with you, pray for you, help you process. We are available throughout August to make sure that you don't do life on your own. Father, in Jesus' name, let there be freedom in our church. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Bring freedom today, Lord. If you're able across this building, stand. We're going to finish by playing this song. Let's engage in this worship as we pray to God. Too good to not believe. Too good to not. 